following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. God, we come to you as men today, and God, I, I know we say this is a national day of prayer, but Father, every day is a day of prayer for us. Every moment is a time that we pray to you, that we realize that we cannot do life as you intended it to be lived on our own, that in our own strength, God, we don't have enough. But in this day, in your grace and in your truth, through the power of your spirit, we know we can stand for you. We can speak for you. We can love as you love and forgive as you forgive. And Father, we ask that as a nation that we would see your kingdom advance. And God, we know it's not a war against flesh and blood. It's not about political parties. It's, it's not even about a stock market or the price of oil. Those things matter in a temporal way for sure, God. They create stress and anxiety. But God, we need a move of your spirit we need your word to be on our minds and that the thought, the first thing that comes to our mind in any circumstance needs to be what you have said about that. And if we don't know that in our heart, we'd seek that out through godly counsel, whether it's with a mentor or reading a book, a podcast, just whatever, God, we would seek you each and every day. Father, we lift up our pastor. We love him. We thank you for him. I thank you that before I was ever on staff and I ran into him in a grocery store, and now that I am on staff and I see him in a staff meeting and I see him preaching, he's the same guy I've seen in every location I've ever run into him. And so, Father, I thank you for that. I pray for his heart to be humble. I pray for his body to be healed. God, we know that you can do all things. And so, Father, as the God of healing and the God that created our bodies, we ask that you would bring restored healing and strength to him. And God, that he would rise up with healing and that he would be able to deliver truth from your word to the men and the women and the children that come here on Sunday, but also, God, in his neighborhood as he has led people to Christ and discipled his neighbor, God, that, that he would still, even there, be effective for you. So, Father God, we love you, and we thank you for this day. Would you speak, and would we hear from you? And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, I am obviously not Dr. Fong. Uh, the last two weeks he is dealing with right now uh, graduation at Dallas Theological Seminary, both in Dallas and in Houston. And he has also worked on final exams and final grades and all of those things. And so he is very, very busy and has asked for our prayers over the last half of this month. And the next two weeks, this week and next week, I'll be finishing up this semester of Warrior's Heart. And then we're going to go radio silent. We're about 12 weeks all the way to uh, September the 10th, which is the Thursday after, la uh, after Labor Day. A couple of things for y'all to know. Number one is uh, at least some of the guys at our table, we are going to meet probably twice a month from now until then just to stay connected, to hear what's going on, to pray for one another. Not next Wednesday night, but the Wednesday after, that's uh, May the 20th, we are going to start a Wednesday evening, 7 o'clock to 8.15, just outside here in the garden room. We're going to start a study called Kingdom Man. It's a book by Tony Evans, but we're using video and discussion and, and sort of table time to work that together. And it's really about stepping into man and the life of a man that God's called you to be. It's a great series 
Uh, our own Jim Jones is going to facilitate that. I'm going to be there. Jim's going to be there. And if you're looking for an ongoing study for most of the summer, that would be one to jump in on. And then, again, this one next week will wrap up here. I want to I wanna say today we are, we've looked at Mark for the last two semesters. And last week, Dr. Fong sort of landed the plane there at the ending with the resurrection and, and really the, the call that went out. And, and I sit there and I'm like, that's great. We hear that Jesus is victorious, but I think there is a very present, present danger for us as men, for us even as Christian men. And so that's made me think a lot about my life. I came to faith in Christ right before I went off to college, about a year before I went off to college, had a real hunger for his word, read his word daily um, got through the New Testament multiple times, didn't really get through the Old Testament until I was in college. But I go off to college, I go to a school, a university that had a rich Christian heritage. So, you know, you're you're new believer, excited about Jesus, you're reading the Bible, you go off to a Christian college, you know, what, how do you think that's going to turn out for me? It was, it was, it was a great school, great. It's Furman University. In fact, uh, here is, a, uh, here is a picture of the library. I spent lots of time in the library, not because I'm a geek and a nerd, but because I am a geek and a nerd. No, um, but because I, I really, that was a great spot uh, for two reasons. One was the community, the, the lower floor, there was no studying that ever went on. And this is a smaller private school. You know, big schools have huge libraries. This was one of the bigger gathering spots you can meet. So if you wanted to sort of hang out with people, talk and visit, the first floor was there. The, the basement, the second and the third floor was where you could actually study. And there were little discussion rooms. And what I discovered there was from the very first day I got there, there was a ton of people that expressed faith in Jesus. But there are also a surprising number of people, even on my freshman floor, that, that sort of took the name atheist on themselves. And this was back in the uh, mid-80s. So this isn't recently. I could only imagine now that it would be even more that way. And so I was burdened with one of my friends, Davies Owens. Um, we've been in ministry together recently, but we were burdened. And I think it was probably his idea, but we created an atheist Bible study, which is real exciting. Uh, couldn't have a more positive experience there, right? So, so we got a discussion room in the library. We put up little mimeograph sheets, little, you know, Xerox copies of atheist Bible study. And we'd have from 15 to 30 or 40 people would show up. Typically men, not usually women. Uh, We would discuss everything from the uh, historicity of Christ, the reliability of scripture. How how do we know miracles could ever happen? The resurrection. uh, Is it not arrogant for Jesus to be the only way? The problem of evil. I mean, everything light and dainty that a 18, 19-year-old guy would certainly have a quick and easy answer for. And, and what I discovered was God really does work in the midst of when we're uncomfortable and don't really have answers. Um, God can speak even when our words aren't right and even when our words aren't perfect, that when we do seek Him and we're being obedient to Him, God can minister through us as men just as we stand faithfully there. But in this, in this discussion room, there were a couple of themes that came out 
different reasons that people uh, denied Christ or said they were atheists. I want to go through some of those this morning. I then want to look at what God's word says about those who reject him or don't believe in him. And then I, I want to give a, a pretty clear call to us as men to be sure that, that we are walking as we need to be walking in a world where this is there. So first is this idea of protest atheist. And these, these were atheists and you know some of these were older upper class people and some were younger i've i've met these atheists literally everywhere and it is it is people that reject belief in god because of suffering maybe a trauma that they went through uh, sometimes it was a a person that said oh i used to believe in god and and i prayed and my parents still got divorced so i don't believe in god he never answered my prayer he doesn't exist other people lost a parent to a disease cancer and they're like, well, I can't believe God would allow that to happen. Or they see a tsunami happen as recent as, you know, a few years ago. And they say, well, if there's a good God that loves everybody, why in the world would that happen? Or they see Baltimore and they're like, look at the chaos up there. There must not be a God because look at what's going on up there. And what I found is when I heard those people, we actually had a lot in common. And it made Christ's call for us to be about justice and mercy and compassionate and serve those who are hurting and serve those who have lost loved ones and be his hands and be his feet and be his love. That there was actually something the gospel had to say about that. And as I aligned myself with the gospel, I found that I could actually be an ally with a protest atheist to say, hey, well, why don't we start mentoring some kids? We've got kids, the inner city kids would come over to the school and we had sort of some service opportunities that we had. And so all of a sudden this atheist sees Christians actually stepping into the very situation that the atheist says is unjust and wrong. And we're actually seeking to do something about that. Does that increase or decrease our influence? Does that increase or decrease our credibility? What do y'all think? It increases it. So understand, a, a protest atheist is not our enemy. There is, a, uh, there is a book, The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Uh, in there, Ivan Karamazov actually chronicles. He's a character in the story, and he chronicles all the bad stuff he sees around him. And this is his reason not to believe in God. And I just what I want to say to y'all is, if you know people that are in that vein... And they may not come out and say, I'm a protest atheist. They may just say, I, I, I just don't really see why you ever go to church. And then you say, well, well, why is that? Tell me a little bit about that. I want to understand that. Well, I just, I, I just really have a lot of trouble believing in God. Wow. Well, I'd love to understand that a little bit more. Why, why don't you? Why is that hard? Well, because fill in the blank. They're going to fill in the blank for you. For those people, it's not a debate that we're going to win but there's a relationship we can enter into. There's a partnership and an authenticity when they see us caring and praying and giving resources and, and doing a men's serve or whatever. I mean, those things are antidotes for people like that. But there are other reasons people don't come to faith in Christ that reject God. And the second is ideological atheist. And, and I should sort of split these into two camps, but I'm just going to simplify it and throw it all into one. Uh, it's sometimes because people are raised with an odd theology. 
And by odd theology, uh, you know, I grew up in Tennessee in the, in the late 60s, 70s, uh, went off to college in the, in the early mid-80s. And, and one of the theologies, I remember encountering, a, it was an African-American guy, a black guy in college. That's what we called him back then. It was a black guy in college. We're sitting down. We're talking. He knows that I had, I had been at church, and it's lunchtime on Sunday, and we're talking. And I said, hey, why don't you come with me next week? And he was like, uh, thanks, but no thanks. I was like, you know, thanks, but no thanks. What? And he says, well, I can't believe in a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus. And where he grew up, every picture of Jesus he ever saw was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus. And he told me that, and I said, I, I, said, I agree with you. I said, I, I'm not serving a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus. I said, why do you think Judas actually was necessary to betray Jesus? I mean, couldn't they have just said, hey, look for the six-foot-four Scandinavian guy without the Viking helmet? Like, couldn't they have just said, well, that's Jesus. He's the guy with the blonde hair. No. He was Jewish. He was Northwest Semitic would be the proper anthropological or, you know, term for him. He, I, I told the guy, I said, he looked a whole lot more like you than he looked like me. But I said, my hope isn't that God would be more like me. I said, my hope is that I would become more like him. And I said, it's not about externals, it's about internals. And so we found that we had something that we could actually talk about there and we could own that. Another guy said, well, you know, I'm an atheist and I can't, I can't believe in any God. And I said, did you know that the early Christians were accused of atheism? And they were. They were raised in a culture that had thousands of gods and goddesses, a pantheon of gods and goddesses. And for Christians, the early Christians rejected all of them except one. So would you like to know about the God that actually won the hearts of the early church? That in a culture of a thousand gods, they rejected all of them and one rose up supreme? Would you like to know about that God? I found that some people have said, yes, I, I would like to know about that God. That there is a, there's an atheism that rejects sort of bad theology ideologically. There's also an atheism that rejects it as well ideologically, and it's a combination of both of those. And that's what we're going to see sort of a new atheism. They call it new atheism. It's sort of a hybrid of those two. I'm not going to talk a lot about that at all today, but I, I want us to turn right now as we get close to seven, I want us to turn to Psalm 14. I put the text down there for you um, to sum it up real nicely, a simple statement. The fool says in his heart, God does not exist. And I spent, you know, getting ready for this. I read a lot of commentaries on the passage and I've summarized one of them for you. And I hope it's a blessing to you. Um, I found the uh, Mr. T theologian. I pity the, okay, no, but uh, yeah. Okay, I was just trying to wake you up on a uh, early Thursday morning. Um, let's, let's read the text and then we're gonna come back and hit five or six little highlights and then I, I wanna give you a little assessment. So uh, let's sit here. The, the fool says in his heart, God does not exist. They are corrupt. They do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Will evildoers ever understand? 
They consume my people as they consume bread. They do not call on the Lord. Then they will be filled with terror, for God is with those who are righteous. You sinners frustrate the plans of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that Israel's deliverance would come from Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. And so David greets us right out of the chute with a very, very strong word. It's the word Nabal. And it it, it doesn't mean intellectually stupid. It's actually about spiritual arrogance is what it is. And yes, spiritual arrogance is not a new creation in America today, it's been around since the dawn of time. But the, the intellectual arrogance is to say that I, I have no need. There is no God. There is no higher power. There is nothing to be accountable to. I can literally do what I want to do, and there are no repercussions for me. In Matthew 5, Christ says, don't ever call anyone a fool. But the word he used was raka, which means worthless valueless, pointless. So what David's saying here is it's, it's an arrogant position to say there is no God. And in fact, we'll see in the book of Proverbs, it's the opposite of wisdom. That wisdom says there is a God. I, I must walk with him. I need him. Foolishness says there is no God. I will walk my own way and I will do my own thing. Number two, he says uh, that the Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who seeks God. Now, there's some questions on the back and uh, around the tables, but the question is, what would it look like to seek God today? What would it look like? And and then also, what are the barriers to that? You know, and I I know in my life, busyness right now, um, I would never stand in front of you and brag that I committed adultery. I wouldn't brag that I've murdered. I wouldn't brag that I've stolen. I wouldn't brag that I'm an idolater, right? These are all parts of the Ten Commandments. But somehow I may feel a little bit better about myself if I violate the Sabbath and I work really hard all the time. How I was raised, it's what our country's built on in a very real sense, a lot of hard work. And I feel guilty sometimes and I feel like God might not care about me as much if I'm not always go, 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 go. Just a confession. So, so what is seeking the Lord? What does it look like? And what keeps us from doing that? And then let's just, I want to read some verses over you because my hope and your hope, the gospel message isn't that we seek God, is it? It's that he seeks us. Whether we're a protest atheist, an ideological atheist, or just a, a Christian man trying to trying to raise a family, trying to honor God in the workplace, trying to just go for it. He seeks us. Listen to this. It says, the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. Luke 19, 10, John 3, 17, Matthew 18, 11, and 1 Timothy 1, 15. In Ezekiel 34, verse 12, it says, as a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he's with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they are scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. In other words, if if you feel like you're lost right now, maybe you were young and you had the relationship with Christ and it was very daily and you was very aware that Jesus is with me. 
that right now you feel scattered and you feel lost and you feel like it's sort of a dark, dreary day, Ezekiel promises God's actually seeking you right now. That's what he's doing. Uh, John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. I think that message is real important because that's the posture that we have in the world. I don't have to go outside of Disneyland and, and burn Mickey Mouse's head and protest that they might have a gay pride parade at, at Disneyland. I don't have to do that because Jesus didn't come to do that. Jesus came to do one thing and one thing only. And guess what it is? To save, to save the lost. Judgment had already been given. Judgment was already there. Here we find in verse three, it says what? All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Who's passing judgment? God. Judgment had already come in the Old Testament. Jesus did not have to come to pass judgment. I mean, do we, I mean, you get that, right? So as we are men of God, we walk out and we have relationships with people and we don't have to judge them. Love them. Love them well. Listen to them. Hear their hurt. Hear their burden. And ask God to give you the wisdom to, to share what God has given to you, which is the spirit of the comforter. It's the truth of his word. And it's grace. God will change everyone. We just need to be the bridge that proclaims his goodness, his mercy. Now, am, am I saying that if I'm asked Eric, why do you think about this sin? Why do you think about adultery, Eric? Well, I can't say anything about it because... No, I can, I, can, I can declare what God declares, but I better do it in a spirit of love and I better do it in a relationship. I better not do it walking onto someone's door and knocking on it or getting a bullhorn and shouting it out at them in a public venue. I, I don't see what that would ever accomplish. I really don't. I don't know about you, right? But if people are yelling at me, how, how, how does that align you with whatever their cause is? drives me away. I'm like, thank you very much. Have a freaking awesome day. See ya. It's like, I don't want to talk to you. So why would it be any different for people that see us in our given days, right? So if, if verse three is true, if all have turned away, all alike have become corrupt, there is no one who does good, not even one. Then the million dollar question is, where does hope lie? And I've asked that on the back of the sheet there. Where does hope lie? And I just want to say, isn't that the point of the gospel, right? That's the point of the gospel. And next fall, we're going to look at great men of the Bible. And then in the spring, we're going to do a couple of series, uh, this spring of 2016. And one of the series is going to be, what is the gospel? And we're going to look at the power of God in his word, what he has said, and, and how the gospel actually is not just for salvation, but it's for discipleship and sanctification as well. Um, verse four. Oh, there we go. That's awesome. I had ocular trauma there. Will evildoers ever understand? They consume my people as they consume bread. What's going on there? What, what's going on there in verse four? He says, they consume my people. And what do you think? I mean, I want you to think about this because I think this is happening in our country today. I think this happens in our world today. 
Yeah, that truly there is a dehumanization that has happened. If God is not God, G.K. Chesterton, who was an influence in C.S. Lewis's life, he's written many books. One thing he said is he said, if someone wanted to rent a room for me in my home, the only question I would ask them is, what do you believe about God? I wouldn't ask how much money you make. I wouldn't ask anything. He says, all I want to know is what they believe about God. And what he says is that what we believe about God is the most practical thing about us. That ultimately what we believe will shape how we interpret everything going on, which will then influence how we feel and what we do and will actually live out what we believe. So if you want to know what a man believes, guess what you need to look at? And we know this, right? Look at what they do. Ultimately reflects their theology. True? Long term, the long trajectory of my life, you'll be able to look on my dying day. And this scares me, by the way. I'm not saying this pridefully. You'll be able to look on my dying day. And you will be able to see either that my life is going Godward or my life is selfish and it's about me and I want to do what I want to do and I really don't care if there's a God. Oh, I say I believe in a God or I've taught a Bible study or I've done a mission trip, but in my heart, not so much so. And when we don't acknowledge the creator, we deny the value of those around us and we will consume them like bread. And in our culture today, in the Middle East, in America today, we see people, I believe, being consumed and used rather than honored and loved. And I think we, we can change that in our spheres of influence. And the more we share Christ, I think the more that spreads where people become fully real and valued as creations of God. They'll be filled with terror for God is with those who are righteous. You sinners frustrate the plans of the afflicted. And that word afflicted is actually the word for impoverished. It could have been translated the poor, those without, those the least and the lost and the broken. That God sits there and for the atheists to say, I'm going to do what I want to do. They are frustrating the plans of those that are trying to get on their feet. They are frustrating the plans of those who are seeking to stand up and rise up. But guess what God's posture is to them? He is their refuge. He's their hope. He's their strong tower. And so for me, not only can we see a culture be dehumanized, but we ourselves can dehumanize other people. But we have the good news to say there is one who is your refuge. There is one who cares mightily for you. And so in a culture, I think it's, it's funny that in our culture today, my, my dad's a conservative guy politically, and I've got friends that are not conservative politically, they're more liberal politically. But here's what I hear from both of them. I hear the exact same thing dealing with poverty. My liberal friends dealing with poverty thinks the government should do more about it. So they want higher taxes on people because the government needs to do something about it. Now, I'm not, I'm not throwing my vote one way or the other on this. My conservative friends, so what am I? Uh, anyway, but my conservative friends, they want the church to do something about it. 
They want, so they're going to give more money to the church, and they want the church to do something about poverty. The reality is, is that God wants me, within the sphere of influence that I have, that if I see a need, I meet a need. That if there is, if there's an individual that I'm aware of that's struggling, I ought to get on my knees. If I'm married, I ought to get on the knees with my wife. If I'm, if I'm single, I ought to get on the knees with a roommate or a friend and say, hey, I'm aware. I, I got a coworker. He got laid off and, you know, I have no idea, but I know he was struggling financially already. And I don't know, maybe I'm supposed to do something. Maybe I'm supposed to ask him at least, hey, can, can I get you a grocery? You know, can I buy your groceries for the week? Can I, can I put gas in your car? I mean, there, there are people at our church that I have filled up their cars for gas. It's not Pat Eric on the back. It's just to say, I recognized a need and I'm not loaded down, but globally speaking, I'm pretty loaded. We've got two vehicles. We've got a house. We've got food. We've got refrigerator. We've got air conditioning, you know, compared to a lot. Now, you know, do I do this with a person on the side of the street that, that when I've offered to buy him something, say, no, I just need money right now. And no, I, I don't, I don't do that. If they want a meal, I'll buy it. I'll, I'll cater the meal. I'll bring it back to them or say, you can hop in and we'll go. And my kids have seen that and they know that. And, and, and that's, I'm just saying here though, it's, it's interesting for me that whether we're liberal or conservative politically, our tendency is we want some system to fix the problem. Let me just say this, poor isn't a problem to fix. They're people to love and people to give and share with and people to stand with. That's what Jesus did for us. We were poor in spirit and he stood for us. In fact, on the cross, he hung for us. Amen. He did. And so real quickly, I'm just going to jump, jump to the end. I, I want to give you, I was at college for four years. We did the atheist Bible study for about a year and a half. We didn't do it all the time. I was an RA for three years. I had lots of late night conversations with a lot of people that were atheists. I mean, we, we talked about dinosaurs and everything. I mean, fossil records, all that stuff. But there was a third type of atheist that I experienced in greater number at Furman University. And I would say that this kind of atheism is probably more dangerous and actually a greater threat uh, ontologically, existentially, uh, philosophically, theologically to the church today than any other form of atheism. And, and that atheism is practical atheism. Practical atheism. And so practical atheism is a little bit different than protest and ideological. Uh, give you an example. My first week at college during orientation on my hall, there were about 24 men. We didn't call ourselves men, but we were 24 men. We were there. And I think probably 20 of the 24 professed to be Christians in their words. But if you charted the trajectory of that life, lived, how they spent time, made decisions, everything. If you charted that out, you would have probably concluded they didn't believe in God at all, let alone Jesus. It's not judgmental, it's just me saying this. Let me give you a definition. Practical atheism does not believe there is no God. Practical atheism lives as if there is no God. That I think the greatest danger to the church today is that we would say with our mouth, 
I believe in Jesus. We would sing songs. Lord, I lift your name on high. Holy, holy, holy. Father, you're, you're, you know, you're my all in all. We would, we would lift up his name singing it, but somehow in our heart that we would say, I'm going to do what I want to do. I really don't care. I say I believe, but I'm going to make decisions the way I want to make decisions because it's about my life. It's about me getting what I want. I become spiritually a little arrogant, don't I? Sounds a whole lot like the Hebrew word Nabal, which is the word fool, which is actually what this is about. I don't think this passage is actually about protest atheists. I don't think this passage is about ideological atheists. I think this passage is about practical atheism for the people of God. And so there on your sheet, I have a little practical atheism test, and it's not meant to be legalistic. Hear my heart. I am not a legalist. I don't drive like a legalist, so I'm certainly not going to be a legalist. And I often pray that the other guy gets the ticket, and I do. And if you're the other guy, I hope it's you. And not, no, but I, I, no, but I'm not a legalist. And I think if you've ever sat down with me, you know that. I do not care where you've been. I do not care what sins you've engaged in. I only know one thing is that God loves you. He's a great and good God. He can transform anyone's life and you're next because he's gonna change your life. And I believe that. That's the heart that I have because that's the gospel. That's, the, that's it. That's the message. And so I'm giving this to you because I think when you see a parallel between how we live and how an atheist, a traditional atheist would live, if you see a high positive correlation, I just want to say, hey, in the name of Jesus, consider repenting of practical atheism and embracing him. First, and, and this is a little different than your handout because I changed my tone last night because I felt like it would look a little legalistic. And so I think this is a better question is, do we pray? Do we pray? And I don't mean just over a meal, but I mean, do we actually believe that there is a God who cares and accepts us and wants to know our heart and is moving to bring about a greater good and a greater glory in any circumstance that we're in? The book of James says that we don't have because we don't ask. James 4, verse 2. It also says we ask selfishly, so we don't always get, right? There's a balance there. But just that, do we pray? Number two, do we read the Bible? Do we read the Bible? So many of us have secondhand faith. Uh, we, we truly, all we know of the Bible is what Pastor Greg has said about the Bible. Or all we know of the Bible is what Dr. Fong has said about the Bible. And you know what? I learned from Pastor Greg and I learned from Dr. Fong, but there is a teacher according to the New Testament that's even better than them, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit says that he will lead us to all understanding of the things of God. It doesn't mean I don't listen to Pastor Greg, but when I'm listening to Pastor Greg, I'm doing it in conjunction with studying the word on my own and praying daily to Jesus. I want your wisdom. Show me yourself more. I want to know you more, Lord. So not legalistically, but there should be a time. And if you're like, hey, Eric, I have no clue where to start, then flag me down at the end of this and we can talk. I got given a challenge early in my Christian life, and it was a thing called the 959 challenge. Give God nine minutes and 59 seconds of every morning. 
and see what he does in your life. And what I discovered was there was not a better use of nine minutes and 59 seconds than spending time in prayer and his word. And I found that the 959 became 1959 and that the 1959 became 4459 and the 4459 became 5959, not legalistically, but I found that. Now today, I wish I could say that I, I was on the, uh, you know, 11959 plan, but with four kids, uh, one off in high school, full-time ministry, I, I am finding myself grabbing five minute, 10 minute, 10 minute, five minute, one minute. I am trying to gather as much as I can, spiritually speaking, as I go through my days. And as I confessed earlier, God has convicted me in the last few weeks of I've got to put a perimeter around the Sabbath so that I can have that extended time that I miss in my heart. Honest confessions of a guy that gets a paycheck from a church. Hope I don't let you down with that, but that's just real life and that's where I'm at right now. Number three, do we walk by sight or do we walk by faith? Remember this from Hebrews 11, verse six. Hebrews 11, verse six. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. That as we live life, I do not think God wants us to go first to our bank account and say, well, I can't do that. That's not possible. I think he wants us to go first to him And if he says, do something, he just wants us in faith to step out and to do it and to trust him. It's risky. It's exciting. It's biblical. If God is calling you to do something, you should step out as a man and do it. And so should I. And I'm proud of our pastor and the leadership team at our church and this congregation of people at the church that stepped out into into Mission 1-8 that it, it made no sense. I'm like, you're, you're raising money to give money away. Like all of it. I mean, I've never been a part of a church. I've never at all been a part of a church that did that. That was, that's so far off grid from what I would associate with what would actually be done. And uh, as a staff member, I was excited and I'm excited that God's continuing to call us in generosity of our time our prayers, our service, finances, all of that. So, so just are we living by faith or are we living by sight? Number four, do we see life as stewardship? I saw a recent study that said if, if the average church was only composed of people that were living on welfare, meaning the, the minimum sort of poverty standards, and they tithed, everyone tithed, the average church budget would double. Because honestly, and I'm not, this isn't our church, but I'm just sharing this with you. And and let me just say it like this. Tithing is the only weapon that God has given me to fight materialism, consumption, and greed. When I did not tithe, when I do not tithe, when I do not give in my heart, I do not grow more generous. I become a lot more stingy and selfish And I start getting mad at people who have more. And that God gave me a weapon called tithing and giving that actually slays the demon of consumption in my life. It's all God's. So I have to be reminded. My wife can remind me. My daughter can remind me. My youngest daughter can remind me. 
I mean, they get touched by something and they want to give everything they've got away. And I'm like, well, no, 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 time out, time out. Daddy had tithes and, and we're taking care of this. And, you know, because that's really my money, you know. And I know God's taught me through that. Just, just stop. Trust me. I'm the provider. It's my resources. You're a steward. Steward it well, Eric. Just steward it well. And number five, do we live only for this life? Do we live only for this life? I think it's beautiful that Psalm 14 ends with this long view of history. The view of history that says that there's a day coming that God restores everything. The atheist lives very short term. I got to get it. I got to get it right now. And if I don't get it now, it might be gone. So I'm going to get it right now. And so when I was dating, get it right now might lead me into the wrong thing in a dating relationship. If I am a married man and on a business trip and my wife's not around and there's a lady that's interested in me, get it might blow my marriage up, right? Get it financially might look like I do something illegal on my taxes, an expense report or whatever. I just got to get it. I just, just got to get it. And, and when we're into the get it mode now and we don't have the long-term mode, we will make really bad decisions. And we as all of us, any human, especially Eric. So I've got to live with that long view going on. So I want to give a quote that our minister to education, uh, Ben Pritchett, uses this, says this all the time. I have no idea where he got it. First time he said it to me, I had to say, why well, say that again? I put it up here so you can see it. It says, he who knows not and knows not that he knows not is a fool. Avoid him. He who knows not and knows that he knows not is a pupil. Teach him. And I think our orientation in our heart, the danger of practical atheism is this. We can feel religiously good and live a spiritually empty life. We can. We can feel religiously good and lead a spiritually empty life. So our prayer is that we would actually know if we're leading a spiritually empty life, our prayer, my prayer is that we would know that and that we would be teachable. We'd be a pupil. The scary thing would be, and the reason I gave you those little diagnostic questions, that might help you discern where's your heart toward God and the things of God. I want to close with a verse from Hebrews chapter 2. It says, we must therefore pay even more attention to what we've heard so that we will not drift away. The current of the world is away from the principles of God. The current of the world is away from others. It's away from him. It's selfish. It's insular. I am the subject of every commercial. I am the hub of it. I can get what I want. It shows me what I want. I can get it. Like I am that. I'm that consumer guy. And so to close with a very short story from the life of Martin Luther, Martin Luther, his Christian life, we're all in the wake of that. He's a reformer, 1500s out of Germany. He's the one that first translated scripture into a common language. He translated that into the language of German. And he was really concerned about uh, reformation happening from the Catholic church, not to start a new denomination. He just wanted to see the Catholic church get away from indulgences and stuff like that. Well, he 
wrestled often after years went on. He was married to Kate, was his wife. We have a daughter named Kate, not in honor of Kate, but our daughter's name is Kate also. Um, They were married, and he was in a bit of a depression. He was complaining a lot. He was whining a lot. He was frustrated a lot. And one day she walked into the study where he was, and she was wearing all black, and she was sunken down, and she walked in. Looked like she had been mourning. Said, Kate, what's wrong? Why are you mourning? And she says, haven't you heard? And he says, heard, heard what? And she said, God is dead. And he said, come on, no. The last thing is that God is dead. God is not dead, God is alive. And she said, then start living like it. Start living like it. God is not dead. We do not have to live like he is dead. Our greatest testimony and the greatest gift that you will give your family, your friends, any place is your life on fire for Christ. Passion to him and for him will be your greatest gift in this world. I promise you. There's some questions on the back. I know I've sort of spoken over my time. But next week, we're going to look at what exactly has God done if we're saying, okay, Lord, I do. I don't want to live like a practical atheist. What has God done in the world to empower us to actually live life with him? What has he done? And our text is going to be in Romans chapter 6. It's actually the very first command that Paul gives in the book of Romans. But we're going to camp out there next week. So let me pray over you. Um, Lord God, I thank you for these men. They are, they are a great testimony to you. Um, Father, I love them. I'm blessed every week that they are here, that I hear them discuss around tables. I see them pray for one another. I know they laugh. I know that we have been through tragedy this year. I know that we have had good things happen this year. But Lord, in all of the ups and all of the downs, Lord, you have been faithful to us and we give you great glory and we give you great praise. Would you uh, be with us as we discuss now around the tables? It's in Christ's name and Christ's name alone that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Fellowship Center of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day.